Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. When Chris Froome first came to prominence on the world tour and started dominating grand tours, all the talk was about how he was constantly looking at his stem. Was he staring at his power meter to gauge his effort? Entire websites were devoted to catching Froome in the act of looking at his head unit while racing his bike. While Froome now claims he isn't staring at his power, and it has to do with breathing, the point deserves attention, given the metronomic nature of some pro racing. If you look at your numbers the whole time, would you be faster? Today, we're sitting down with Training Peak's co-founder, Dirk Friel, to discuss what numbers, if any, you should use to gauge your racing efforts. Of course, any discussion of how to race a bike naturally evolves into a broader conversation about strategy, tactics, psychology, and even equipment. So today, you'll gain plenty of insights into general racecraft. Most of the discussion, however, will be about the numbers, which numbers can help you, and in which race setting they're most appropriate, and just as importantly, which numbers can hurt your racing, or at least your mindset. We'll also discuss how you can use numbers to prepare for specific races, and even to plan out your race. In addition to Dirk Friel, today we'll also hear from sports psychologist Simon Marshall, former World Tour rider Svein Tuft, pro racer Shana Paulus, and athlete and coach Jen Sharp. How's that STEM look? Let's make it. Hey, it's Coach Ryan here. Many of us are enjoying a return to bike racing. These early races of the season are ideal for testing your race fitness. But how much more could you get out of this season if you knew your VO2 max, or if you reset your training zones? Our new Inside Advanced Test offers you an incredible detailed look at both of these metrics and many more. Schedule an Inside Test with us this week and your test results can pay off in better performance for the rest of the season. See more at FastTalkLabs.com. Welcome to Fast Talk. We've got co-founder of Training Peaks, Dirk Friel, in the studio today with us. Welcome to Fast Talk. Yeah, super. Thanks for having me on. This is uh, going to be fun. And today we're going to talk about racing by numbers, racing with numbers, what's good about that, what's bad about that. Dirk, it sounds like you had a little uh, altercation with a Belgian car at some point <laughs> by staring down at the stem. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the bad side of uh, having computers in your handlebars, you know, is uh, heads up for cars. And yeah, it was back in like 1990 when I was in Belgium and it wasn't even interesting data. It was just distance and speed. <laughs> and I was looking down at my handlebars and went right into a parked car and ruined my bike. Oh. I had to get a new one, but I got an I got a Mosier out of it. Well, hey, I upgraded to a Mosier. There you go. <laughs> yes, <laughs> maybe it was an intentional uh, crash. Hey, mom, uh, I ruined my bike. You sent some money to Belgium. Nice. <laughs> so there's your answer. Look at the numbers because you get a better bike. Out yes. Of it. Hey, yes. sometimes I'll it works. Prove. Like we said, it sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good. <laughs> right. Yeah. A little but, bit of pain in the middle, but that's okay. Yeah. We, we start with a lighthearted story there, but obviously we want to get into a little bit more of the nuances here of what the numbers can, can help us with and hurt us with in a, in a more serious way. So Trevor, tell us, uh, you have a recent story about your relationship with, with numbers and data and racing. Yeah, I was just up at uh, Steamboat Roubaix. It's a good race, hard race. I didn't have the best day. I finished 12th, but it wasn't that big a field. 
it split up fairly early on. And in the second half of the race, there were three pretty substantial climbs. First time going up, there was a guy just ahead of me. There was a guy behind me. I was on my own in between. So I was trying to pace myself and looked at the numbers. I went, okay, I'm going to try to push myself. I looked down. I was, it was high altitude. I was hurting. So I was sitting about 300 watts and just went, okay, I got to get this up to, to 320, 325 and tried to hold it, hold it there. I went, no, oh, that, that wasn't too bad. Got to the top of the climb. We did a big loop, came back around. And second time going up that climb, I was closer to the guy ahead of me. I had him in my sights. Didn't look at the numbers at all. Just mm. chased him. Caught him right near. So we got over the top, caught him right after that. But I felt, you know, I, I probably didn't go as hard this time because I, I wasn't looking at anything. And then the final climb, I was with the guy and tried to see if I can get him off my wheel because I'd beaten him on the previous climb. So took that climb really hard. Couldn't get him off my wheel. I left that race thinking that time when I was pushing the numbers was probably my best climb of the race. And when I looked at my data afterwards, it was my slowest climb. Hmm. It was my worst climb. The second time when I had that guy in my sights on the same climb and was just chasing him, I was significantly faster. I was like 20, 30 seconds faster. And obviously the final climb was a different climb, but that's the one where I put out the, the biggest power. My actual slowest time was the time I was looking at the numbers and trying to push a number, which I found yeah, kind of interesting. It almost served as a governor to you. You're like, I right. got to hit that number and I can't go beyond it because I'm trying to hit that number. And it's all about that number. And that limited you in a sense. Right. Yeah, and the yeah. heat of the moment, competition and adrenaline, and that gets you going when you're chasing someone. And you, you get that rabbit out there. Why, why look at the numbers sometimes, you know? Right. Well, exactly. And I think what I thought about it, and as I was reading some of the research for this, looking back, when I was trying to target a number, the first thing that occurred to me is I looked down at my numbers and I was like, I'm only doing 300 watts. Like it, it was discouraging. It, knowing what I, I feel like I should be able to do, that was discouraging. So I was targeting 320, 325. But I was not optimistic. I wasn't going, wow, I'm crushing it. It was like, I have to force myself to do numbers that even those numbers I, I wouldn't write home about. But then the altitude, like, are you, are you going to sit there in the race and interpret the, the effect of altitude? And you're at 8,000 feet, but you normally train at 5,500 feet. And maybe is that 3%? And what's 3% of right. 330? And it's like, <laughs> right. uh, no, don't, don't, don't go there. I wasn't thinking about any of that. I was thinking, <laughs> I suck. I've got to make myself do 325 so I'm not embarrassed. So it was very negative. <laughs> the second time when I was chasing a guy, I was very positive because I'm catching this guy. I'm seeing this person in front of me. I've got a target. I'm, I'm reeling him in. And that really motivated me to chase him down. And certainly, uh, I can't remember my exact power, but chasing him down, I was averaging like 335, 340. Right. You know, I mean, that's what I love about road racing is the instinct and just in the moment and, and going above and beyond what you think you can do, but you don't know, know it at the time. Right. Right. Shayna Paulus, a pro racer with Team 2020, talked with us about when she uses numbers in racing. Let's hear what she has to say. During a race, for me, I typically don't like to pay attention too much to my numbers um, compared to how much I pay attention to them during training, you know, when I have like, especially on structured days when I'm really trying to make sure I'm hitting 
like super specific exact number windows. Um, but then during races, I mean, the only, the only types of racing where I really do make sure I'm paying attention to my numbers, um, would be during time trials and team time trials, um, particularly on, uh, uh, Zwift team time trial races, which our team's actually been doing quite a bit of lately. So for those types of races, I mean, it's, it, I would say it's definitely important to kind of make sure you're monitoring your power numbers. Um, I never, again, I never look at heart rate, um, pretty much just power, just making sure I'm, you know, not going too hard too soon. Or, you know, if I like feel like I'm drifting off a little bit, I always make sure I just kind of, you know, monitor my numbers, make sure I can slowly bring it back up to where um, it needs to be. Um, but yeah, for, for time trials, team time trials, I feel like it is important to know what numbers to hit just so you know exactly um, what zone um, you're, you're trying to stay in for the duration of those races. But then in other words, with, you know, mass start races, you know, with gravel races, mountain bike races, road races, that's, those are, those are races I don't typically tend to look at my power unless maybe I want to glance down if I'm, you know, trying to break away or if I'm riding solo and I want to make sure I'm, you know, not like going too hard to where I'm going to just totally explode in the middle of a race, then that would be a time where I would look at my power. But generally speaking, I really only pay attention to the numbers um, during time trials and uh, team time trials. Yeah, I think that story st sets a, sets the stage well. Talks it gets at some of these nuances um, of context and what's right for one situation might not be right for another situation. One type of race it might not it might be right for that. Another type of race race or race day might not be got altitude to consider, you got temperature to consider, you got dehydration to consider, you got all these things. So sometimes numbers are good, sometimes they're not so good. We'll get into all of that. Shall we step back a second and set the stage with a little bit of a, what are the numbers that we're referring to? What are the numbers we can use in racing? Absolutely. All right. Dirk, would you like to give us an well, overview of? Yeah, we've been pounding power uh, so far, and that's kind of the the big one, because that really shows the workload, you know, in the moment, the workload, the heart rate, obviously heart rate is another one, but heart rate tends to be, you know, lags behind the effort. If you go all out for two minutes, you're not really going to see that spike until after you've done that two minute um, effort. But, you know, heart rate can be good because it can kind of give you a gauge of, of a longer effort. You know, the first 20 minutes of the race, you know, what, what kind of heart rate are you seeing? Um, you know, speed, I rarely ever look at speed. I mean, I don't even think I have speed on one of my screens on my Garmin, and I rarely look at it. Um, hmm. But I can go into, I do have some thoughts around speed, though, so I think we'll we'll get into that. Okay. Yeah, I, I definitely wanted to discuss that one, because yeah. I think it's undervalued. Mm. I, I will point out the simple yeah. fact that a race has never been won by somebody who didn't average the highest average speed. True. Exactly. <laughs> that is the, by nature, a race. The speed is never irrelevant. That's, it's not the person that necessarily averaged the highest wattage. It was the person with the highest average speed. And I do think there are cases, but we'll, we'll get to this where, where speed is useful. You know, we have many others. I mean, cadence, altitude, 
you know, the distance, you know, I, I threw down here weather and wind. This is a little bit more about going into the race and what the forecast is. You're not getting these live updates during the race per se, unless you have a race radio and you're in the pro peloton. Um, but, you know, forecasting the wind and weather can really affect how you um, attack the race course. Course profile, you know, you could certainly have that on your head unit. And Do you have a different screen on your head unit for race day versus training day? And if so, what, does that, what do you have on that first screen on your head unit on a, ra- on a road race day? Time, distance, power, heart rate is really what I primarily look at. Mm-hmm. In training, when I'm doing intervals, then I'll have last last lap, you know, average um, heart rate, power, current current lap um, mm-hmm. time, current lap, you know, normalized power, current lap, average heart rate. Um, then that will. You know, if you're, it's kind of neat if you do a circuit, you can put on auto lap and it's kind of neat how to auto lap for you mm-hmm. um, within, within training. And that's really, really cool stuff. Um, so I, I guess I go with minimal kind of data, if you will, on my, on my handlebars when I'm, when I'm racing. Yeah. And Trevor, I know that you pack stuff onto your garments uh, screens for training. Do you change it up for race day? I do have a race screen with data, but I find more and more, and and I do think this is part of the numbers, this is part of the data, uh, more and more what I use on my screen in a race that I care about is the course map and particularly the course profile. Mm -hmm. I find it invaluable to see when's the next climb coming up, Um, how important is that? And here I'll share another story. I think of, of Nature Valley back in 2011, where not a, not as many people back then had garments where you could have this on it. I had the course profile uh, for one of the big road races on on my screen. Saw that we were this is course that has these three kind of one mile climbs in a row, and saw that we were coming up on the first climb. Chad Hager was our, our team leader. He was lounging at the back of the field. So as we were coming up to, it, I went back and I said something like, "Get on my damn wheel!" <laughs> Probably a little more curse words than that. Got him on my wheel, brought him to the front just in time for the climb. And then we hit the climb hard. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, this hurts. But came over the climb third wheel. What I didn't realize was Optum had a plan to attack on that climb to catch United Healthcare off guard. And they did. And we accidentally got into the breakaway. And that Chad stayed in the breakaway. He ended up finishing, I think, fifth overall in the race because of that because he was at the right place at the right time. I pulled the dumbest move in my life, which was I didn't realize we had broken away. So as we crested the top, <laughs> I wanted to check on one of the other riders in our team. So I slipped back and all of a sudden I'm out of the breakaway going, what just happened? <laughs> and yeah. missed being in the winning camera. breakaway <laughs> yeah. of the race. That goes back to having that, knowing when that climb was coming up, made all the difference. Chad would not have made that breakaway if, if I hadn't had on the screen seen that and made sure he was in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially if you don't know the course, haven't done it before, you know, knowing on your, on your unit, you know, how much farther it is to the climb, the profile is coming up, certainly. But ideally, you're reviewing that the night before, too. Um, but you don't always know the distance to the next climb in the moment. Right, 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 yep. Okay, so you 
have limited, both of you are using uh, some amount of data in, in racing, certainly a lot in training. I wonder if the, the next question is, what can you not have on your head unit's screen that is important? Like what are the data points that can't be put into a head unit at this point in time? More and more things are coming to the head units. <laughs> that's what I'm. That's what um, I'm alluding to. Yes, you know, and you know, I'm thinking right now the CGMs, the, the continuous glucose monitors, and Super Sapiens is making a lot of you know headlines right now, and that's going to be, you know, an app on on the head unit on all the head units probably within the next six months. You know, uh, probably already is in Europe, but it's not approved in the United States yet. Um, so that's something that's coming that will play into your fueling strategy. Historically, we've had just, you know, try and consume whatever it is, 75 grams of carbs an hour or 50 or whatever you're, you're targeting, um, you know, and kind of go off a schedule. But once we start to get some of this data, it might become more individualized and in the moment. And the strategy actually will affect your fueling as well. You can't always predict how hard or slow the stage will be, you know, and what the tactics of the day will be. And so you might end up setting a new PR in the first 20 minutes of a three and a half hour road race. You didn't foresee that coming. Hence, that's going to dramatically affect your fueling um, strategy. And if you're getting that data in the moment of I'm, I'm getting really low, heads up, you know, reminder, I need to get on top of my fueling when I can, when I can breathe, you know. That's a metric we're going to be seeing um, coming out in the next year, I suspect, mm. that we don't have on the head unit today. Right, right. Trevor, I know that you have used the Leomo in the past. Is there anything on the Leomo that you wish you had all the time? In a race, no. I, I think the Leomo is fantastic for training. Uh, I, I particularly like using it when I go out for a ride just to help me make sure I'm in the right position, focus on my pedal stroke. But once I'm in a race, I, I don't want to be thinking about those things. I want to sure. be thinking about the race. Yep. I, I do like what you're bringing up because uh, I think there's different types of metrics. So I brought up the, the, the race profile. You're bringing up things telling you about your fueling status. I think metrics in a race that help you take actions – are going to help. Right. I, and I would differentiate the metrics. I don't put power heart rate necessarily in those categories because if the field's going hard, your power and your heart rate's going to be what it's going to be. And you might look at it, and I think all it's going to do is either make you feel good or make you feel really bad. But it's not necessarily going to make you take much in the way, in the way of action. Having something saying, you are depleting your glycogen, you need to be fueling, or there's a big climb coming up, you need to be at the front of the field that can be enormously helpful in the race. Yeah, agreed. I mean, that being smart enough to make the take the right decisions with the data that's coming in. Um, or you just had to bridge some gap and you know that one mile climb is coming up. My heart rate is through the roof. How do I calm things down or at least for the next minute? Yes. So I can recapture some of that energy and, you know, and, and use it on the next one mile climb. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a good segue into maybe where we head next, which is putting this into a context, how the numbers can help in racing in certain race situations. How does it help? How do the numbers help and which numbers help when it comes to perhaps a TT effort pacing? 
Yeah, it's it, you know, time trials are dramatically different than road races. And we've been talking about road racing being very instinctual and you can't always predict what's going to happen. In a time trial, you want to try and set that tone and and set that strategy for yourself. Um, and so that means data can play a large part in how you go after that course. Ideally, you've looked at that course many times. If you haven't actually ridden it, but you have it virtually, you have the profile, um, you can then analyze it. Ideally, let's break it down into a few simple segments. You know, where are you going to make the most time and or lose the most time? You probably aren't looking at a 12% descent with a tailwind for the next two miles <laughs> yeah. to make up your time. Sure, sure. That aerodynamic, yep. you know, exponential, you know, just equations don't work out there. So is that the area where you're going to try and maintain? Well, is that the first two miles or the last two miles? Um, likewise, if it's a 12% two-mile climb, you know, where is that in the race? Do we need to enter? Ideally, we're entering that climb going ready to pound it out all out if that's the major objective of the day and that might be in the first half of the race um that's a much different strategy than if it's in the second half of the race so given that example um what might you target on that two mile climb how long do you think it's going to take you um therefore what kind of power should i be targeting on that climb um i think if it's at the in the first third of the race you might need to put some more, I hate to say limits, but more pacing strategy around it. If it's the final two miles of the climb, throw the numbers away and you hopefully you've gotten to that point with enough energy reserves to really just pound it out and set a new personal record. <laughs> so it really kind of depends on where the obstacle of the course is whether, and, and that determines how much of the data you leverage or not in, in my view. Trevor, we just had Kristen Armstrong on the program not too long ago, up. and uh, mm. she had a particular yeah. D describe that for to recap uh, for people that didn't catch that show, and and give us your thoughts on the data to be used during time trialing. Well, the thing that really came to mind from that interview is she said the data can be great for pacing, especially getting those those time markers. But she said there's always a point in a time trial where you are going to not hit the pacing you expect. Uh, so be ready for that. And that is one of the dangers. If you say, I want to hit this point by this time, this point by this time, this point by this time, one of those points, you're not going to hit it at that target time. And how are you going to deal with that? And if that is going to demotivate you, maybe you don't do that and just focus on racing your best time trial. But she, she seemed, you could tell she is just a mentally tough woman. And she basically said, yeah, I have those points where I'm, I'm off the marker. So then I have to start figuring out where do I make up time? Yeah. You know, I actually chatted with Ryan Cooper about this a little bit too. He's the chief scientist at Training Peaks and founder of Best Bike Split. Um, so he really comes from a mathematics modeling background and just a simple rule of thumb, even if you don't have power on your bike, but you have speed can be, you know, 20 kilometers an hour is kind of a determiner, if you will, of should I stay in the arrow bars or come out and, you know, be up on the hoods on a climb. So if it's calm and you are on a climb over 12 miles an hour, you know, try and stay in the arrow position. If it drops below that, 
you know, it's, it's more than appropriate if, especially if you're dropping power to come out and be able to have a more comfortable position and pound out the climb. However, if there's a headwind on that climb, he's, he states, try and stay in the aero position for as long as possible until you really start to drop power. Then you, you need to change your, up your position. But you know, that 12 mile an hour, 20 K an hour kind of, mm. uh, that's rule a threshold of thumb yeah. is kind of a aerodynamic kind of rule of thumb to be thinking about. Um, so that's some one piece of data that might come into play in a time trial or even, you know, in a road race, you know, being in the drops or the, or the hoods. I loved your hill example of, you know, you had that hill that's several miles, um, you know, saving it and then pushing that mm-hmm. last mile or two. I think one of the values that numbers, particularly power can help you with in pacing is actually limiting yourself, knowing when mm-hmm. to limit yourself. So let's say you're on a 20 minute climb you're right at the base of it and you're putting out 400 watts and you know your 20 minute power is around 300 watts, you know you can't sustain that. You know this is a bad idea. So you need to bring it down, control yourself. Uh, one of the, the biggest mistakes that athletes make in time trialing or whether it's flat time trial or hill time trial is starting out too hard, mm-hmm. coming out of the gates and just killing it. And again, looking down at the power and going, okay, this is a 45 minute uh, time trial and, and I'm doing power that I can sustain for five minutes. Right. You, Not going to work you out. You got to back it down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. That said, you do have to be careful about trying, if you're doing a time trial and saying, I am targeting a particular power, I would caution against that. I would say be very careful. And there's actually a great study, and uh, I could find it if you need me to, but um, where they took athletes, had them do time trials. They had them first just do a time trial where they couldn't see any numbers, just self-pacing, do the best time trial they could. They figured out what their average wattage was for that time trial, and then they had them repeat the time trial where they had to target the wattage they had sustained the previous time, it was something like 60 or 70% of them couldn't do it. Even though they'd already demonstrated mm-hmm. they could average that wattage, when they tried to average that wattage, they couldn't do it. Mm. Back in 2016, I did an interview with Swain Tuff, an ex-pro cyclist and second-place finisher at the World Championships time trial. The interview told a lot about how one of the best things about racing and numbers I've been hanging on to this interview for just the right episode. Let's hear what he has to say. You know, how do you determine where your threshold is and when you're doing a time trial or when you're racing? Are you looking at numbers? Is it measured or is it a feel thing? How do you go about it? Yeah, unfortunately, our lives have all been come bombarded with this, uh, this power output. And uh, there's not a lot of guys that can go by feel anymore. No. Uh, it's especially uh, apparent when you're doing a team time trial. You know, guys will live and die by the by the SRM or whatever your chosen device is. And yeah. I think it's uh, I think it can be very detrimental to to base everything we do off of this uh, this set number that we did in some physiology lab. And and I really believe that. Okay, these things are important, and they are definitely a huge help in what we do. But at the same time, they uh, they really disconnect you from the reality of where you you might be at that given moment. And 
you know, it's more important to understand your body and understand where you're at at that moment than to try and live up to some uh, impossible expectation on yourself. And, uh, you know, like I said, it's it's very fresh in my mind because of uh, team time trialing and all the work we've done in the last little while. And I see young guys just trying to 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 push this incredible number that they all believe is necessary to win the the world championships, but uh, it's not sustainable. Right. And so that's where I think a lot of times these things, when you don't understand your body and you you don't understand the what's what's working behind the scenes there, you really run into trouble. And uh, yeah, I've seen it many times. So for myself, it's it's more about understanding where you are at at that moment and what you are actually capable of. So in the case of like, uh, you know, we have to ride the front full to bring, bring a break back. Okay. I, I'll, I'll have a look at the power here and there, but really I'm going by a feeling that I know I can sustain for, if it's necessary, I might have to chase for 20 K. If I have to ride for 50 K, it's a totally different feeling. And, uh, that's just lucky from years of experience. But, uh, I think more than anything you need to, to find, your own n equals one type of uh, magical number instead of uh, trying to to uh, push some uh, imaginary perfect number. <laughs> I see so many guys trying to, uh, you know, uh, in a time trial or, or whatever, trying to hold this um, this uh, power output, and it's never really the case, you know. It's, it's never really how it's done, and a, and a time trial is all about picking your battles and, and understanding the course and, and yourself. So yeah, numbers are great, but uh, they they don't uh, <laughs> win all the bike races. Yeah. So when you're in a time trial, do you have a computer at all, or are you going completely by feel? Yeah, of course. I, like I said, I'm still a fan of the technology and and uh, and the numbers. I'm I've always been interested. But I find like I can be very calm, uh, become very obsessive about it. And so for me in a time trial, like if I'm on a good one, uh, I will I will have a look, kind of from the start. I'm always careful to uh, make sure I'm not like punching way above my own my own limit. And yeah. so I really, really take a controlled start. And then once once I'm into it, I. I and I'm on a really good one, then my mind is, is very focused. So I don't need to, I know the feeling and I'll just check every now and then to make sure I'm around the mark and not like over it or, or struggling under it. And, uh, once, once I know the feeling, then I just, I focus on staying on that feeling instead of constantly looking down and, and having that funny little, uh, uh, communication with the computer. So is that the same thing when you're having a bad day or do you start looking more for external cues on a bad day? Yeah. I mean, always on a bad day. That's, that's how my first indicator of a, of a bad day is, is I'm not confident in what I'm doing. So I need constant reassurance. And, uh, that's when, you know, you're focusing too much on the wrong things. And, uh, like I said, I haven't had a lot of, uh, you know, like, a ton of great TT rides in my life, but the ones that I have had, it's been nothing to do with numbers <laughs> and, and paying attention to that. You know, it's been about tapping into that other side of you that um, 
just seems to to be able to push and keep pushing and yeah, that's that's the most important. So, but it does sound like you know your own numbers. How do you determine them? Is this you go into the lab and you get that number, or is it more you, you look at what you're doing in races and and how your intervals are going and and really base it off of that? Yeah, I mean now we're part of uh, you know like in our in our team we we have, all have uh, massive data from every race and every training session and so the numbers are all there they fluctuate throughout the season obviously as your form gets better and and uh, compared to you know what I will be in a month from now uh, which will be my probably my lowest end and and. Uh, it changes, but ever so slightly, eh? And yeah, but yeah, we're we're all very we all know what what those numbers should be and roughly where we can get to. But uh, you know, after you've been doing it this long, you 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 know uh, it's not going to change that much, eh? And yeah, and the more variables there are in the course, the ups and downs and headwind, etc., it power is going to jump all over the place. You know, you hit a little climb. And hit over 600 watts on the backside, you might end up coasting in a very aero position for the next 10 seconds, and then back on it at 350 or something, right? So that's all over the map. The average of that, are you supposed to just sit at the average for that, you know, power right, data? Right. Like, no, you have to race the race, the course. Um, I would say, however, in like Ironman, you, it can become a very big advantage if you've modeled it out. Um, you know, for example, in best bike split, if it's a very simple course an out and back or, or something, um, you have that on your head unit, sort of this virtual rabbit that's pacing you because you are setting up for a marathon and you can lose a lot of time on the marathon. So targeting that intensity factor on the bike and sort of having this virtual rabbit to keep you in check, um, could be a, a, a big advantage in a half or a full Ironman. Mm -hmm. yep. I could see that. Absolutely. Let's jump away from time trials for a second, get into other aspects of racing. Uh, how do you pace yourself, for example, in a breakaway? So speed can become a metric there. You might, you might look at in certain situations, you know, if we're on a constant wind with a constant gradient, you don't expect speeds to, to just change because of the course in front of you. You're in a, and let's say you're in a breakaway what I was try what I always tried to do in a breakaway if I wanted it to succeed is I you want it to be smooth, like these smooth transitions. And yes. when you get to the front when it's your turn, the way to ruin a breakaway is dramatically increase the speed on the front. So even in team time trials, this is the case. You don't want the strongest guy to up it by three miles per hour every time Those he or she can gets destroy on the front. everything, yes. So or do you want to slow it down? Right. You would want the strongest person to stay on the front for the longest um, and try and maintain that speed. And that's a better use of that energy is to stay on the front longer rather than pick it up. However, the inverse I would also do. I would sometimes in breakaways when I knew the finish line is, you know, in reach and I might end up having to solo this and attack. I might really royally mess up the person that just <laughs> pulled and they're coming yes. off. They're going towards the back. I will ramp it up because I want them to take effectively a second to pull. 
and just, just to hang waste on. all kinds of right. energy. If I knew I was stronger than them, I could really disrupt their rhythm. I might do the very same pull amount of time on the front that they did. I would pull off and they're still trying to recover while I'm on, you know, I'm more recovered than they are, right? <laughs> so it can go either way, but it's a psychological game. And that's a lot of what I loved about, I call it chess on wheels, you know, in this psychological game and strategy. So, you know, do I want this to succeed and be as and, and be as smooth as possible, even I even though I don't have teammates in the break? Or is this a time for me to really mess other mm -hmm. guys up? Sure. Yeah. I, I love it. You're getting into the subtleties, and that's one of my favorites, is if you're in a breakaway, identify the strongest rider and get ahead or behind them, and then there's these little things that you can do to really wear them down and make them hurt. You're like time your pull so they have to enter the headwind you yep. can take a turn and force them into the headwind <laughs> right right you have yep. a tailwind oftentimes you know being on the front and the tail across tailwind being on the back is the worst place to be you know yep so timing of where you're going to be in that pace line is such a big part of the strategy of racing uh, which i i just fell in love with that's i think it's why i fell in love with road racing more than triathlon mm-hmm yep Oh, it's just, it's fun. All those little games that you can play. <laughs> but yes, if I'm in a, a breakaway with other riders, I immediately go to a screen where I can see cadence and speed. Because if you are trying to work effectively with them, it's, it's exactly that. You don't want to, when you take your pole, you don't want to speed it up. You don't want to slow down either. So when I am second wheel and know it's about to be my turn to pull, I look at what's my cadence, what's my speed, because as soon as that person pulls off and you get hit by the wind, it's actually very hard for you to gauge if you're maintaining speed or not. Mm -hmm. So I will look at those and make sure I'm keeping the same pace, make sure I'm keeping the same cadence. Right. And don't be the person that pulls off the front and stays at the front. Yes. And then you're now it's your turn to pull, but you're somehow fighting for the front. Like if, if, if you're pulling off the front, get to the back and recover. Yeah, there's just a rhythm to it that some people don't get. Yeah, and a little bit back to power, I just had a kind of flashback. I, I tend to like try and read from my numbers, what are other people doing up the road? You know, if I am by myself chasing someone else and we're maintaining this gap, you know, I, I bet they're at or above threshold at whatever this, my my watts per kilo is currently, right? So am I therefore fitter or not than this? And I'll go, I'll go to that place, which I know is not always a, that, not the best place to be, but I'll be like, I doubt they can do five watts a kilo for the next 10 minutes, you know, or, you know, but I know Calcul my head, all those that's, calculations. Yeah. You know, I'll be yeah. like, yeah. I bet. So if I sit at three twenty, you know, I, de I bet they'll come back or, or if they're behind me, I bet I'll crack them. They're on my wheel. If I up it by 10, 15 watts here, I bet it's just enough over. It's only going to take me four minutes to get rid of them. You know, like I'll, but sometimes I need that in my head to, to just go to a place where I can separate from the pain. And that helps me sometimes mm. to think in the numbers, you know, if it's mm -hmm. simple math. <laughs> mm -hmm. right. um, but yeah, I, 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 that's the personal place I go to which I actually get joy out of, you know, that, that strategy of like, what's their threshold versus mine? Can I, am, am right. I going to be just above it, you know, and crack them? Tried to find some research on this, found a little bit. We actually talked about, about one of them uh, in that episode with Kristen Armstrong about time trialing. Mm -hmm. But something that 
what I, I was reviewing the research last night that kept coming up that I think is really important here. And this is where I'm going to correct something I've said many times on the episode. I say, I've always said you have three metrics uh, for intensity, power, heart rate, and RPE. And I've always said your, your rate of perceived exertion is the most important. But actually, these couple studies I, I read kind of took it a step further and said there's something that's even more important than, than rate of perceived exertion, which is affective state. So that's essentially, if you want to simplify it, it's your mood. Mm -hmm. So if you're feeling confident, you're feeling strong, that's a positive affective state. If you don't feel like you're, you're capable, you're angry, those are negative affective states. And they can have a big influence on what you're, you're able to do. Um, and so a couple studies, one of them that was really interesting was the influence of mid-event deception hmm. on psychophysiological <laughs> status and pacing. Uh, that's actually half the name. I won't give you the rest of the name. <laughs> I, lo I love how they just take a simple concept and turn it into such a formal, structured thing that, yeah, go ahead. You, you can't write a study and have a clear, understandable I know. title. I know. They just won't accept yep. it. <laughs> so basically, this was actually a, a triathlon study, but it was quite neat where they had people repeat a sprint triathlon three times. So the first time they just did it for best time. Then the second time they had them do the bike leg 5% faster or harder. So power was 5% higher than in their, their self, completely self-paced effort. They did that in both of the next two, but in one case, after they finished the bike, they informed them that they had gone harder in the bike than, than their, their self-pacing. Uh, in the other one, they had them go 5% harder again, but lied to them. They told them they went slower. They, they told them they went the same pace. Oh, the same pace. Okay. It also actually set it up so that the power was, was reading wrong. Yeah. So mm. it looked like they were doing the same. And what you saw was the best performance. Now, it wasn't significant because they didn't have enough numbers, but it was a 17-second difference. When they were lied to, that was the condition where they performed the best. Hmm. When they were told they went 5% faster, they were kind of like, oh, no, and they slowed down their run because they believed they had been overpacing themselves and they didn't have anything left for the run. When they were lied to, they went faster in the, in the, the bike, obviously, but then went the same speed as the self-paced in the run because they believed they could. So that's an indicator of the affect. And that affect outweighed their sense, of the, the, the RP, their sense that they sure. had been sure. going harder. And there, there were some indicators that they could sense that, yeah, this hurts more than, than when I was self-pacing. Yeah. Self-interpretation is so, so critical. Like, are you on the positive side of this equation or the negative side in on the negative side that that just seeps in and tends to make it worse and worse i was thinking that when i was riding the trainer yesterday hating the numbers i'm looking at i'm like if this is an indoor test right now i wish i wouldn't see these numbers i just want to do this ramp test with no numbers at all in front of me you know because i could probably go farther if i didn't even know what watts right. i was at you know and so I, sometimes i think like I've done too many ramp tests where I knew the numbers, and that was that was probably not a good thing. Hmm. And that was kind of the gist of the other study that I read, where they had athletes do three time trials in a row and showed that the previous performances affected their affective state 
in subsequent performances. So if you're doing those intervals and going, oh, I kind of suck, the next time you do those intervals, you're going to expect yourself to suck. Likewise, if you start seeing certain numbers, you expect that's the numbers I can do and you don't push yourself. Uh, so these are the dangers. And I think, well, numbers, there are many cases where numbers can be beneficial. You have to ask yourself that honest question. Are the numbers putting me in a, a more positive effective state or a less positive? I don't mind looking at numbers in a race because when I look down and see 450 watts, I'm like, woohoo, that's cool. I get really excited. I know other people looking to go, I can't do this and slow down. It has a very different effective influence on them. So you have to kind of look at which am I? And if they're mostly giving, putting you in a, a negative effective state, that's going to affect your performance more than anything. Stop looking at them. Yeah. Yeah, RPE. Can, can you prescribe intervals off your RPE and say go 10 minutes at 8 <laughs> out of 10? You know, sometimes that's a good way to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And see the data afterwards. Yes, absolutely. Certainly, yeah, my athlete, if I told him to do something by RPE, and then they, well, he told me to do it by RPE, so I didn't record it. Well, yeah, record, record it. <laughs> How can I help you? So definitely record it. <laughs> Do you ever work with athletes who are kind of not into seeing the data, uh, don't really care to look at it? You want it as a coach. You want to look at it. You want to check in on all those things, but they're not really interested in it. Um, Chris, I have worked with you. I know. that's the, <laughs> so, so you've got an athlete like that um, who doesn't really look at the training data, but would you still encourage them to key off of certain things in racing in terms of the data? Well, Chris already knows my answer. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Dirk, why don't you take this one? <laughs> no, I mean, each each athlete is unique and different, and you don't need to overburden an athlete with the numbers if they don't care for it. So if we can set that internal pacing and RPE and their own self-regulated, you know, that's kind of the, the best right there. They can They can manage their energy reserves, their – lactate levels, et cetera, internally, you know, and that's a great way to race. Although if it's a newer athlete and you, you put a power meter on their bike and they do a time trial and they absolutely horribly mess it up and just didn't do the pacing you had talked about doing ahead of time, then we might pull out the data and show what could have gone better in mm -hmm. that time trial. Sure. Um, there might be a case of, okay, we're going to have you look at this, but make it simple. I don't want you to go over 250 watts for the first 10 minutes, whatever it might be, you know? Um, so that's a, a very simple case of where numbers can be a benefit, but don't overburden the athlete with the numbers. Other athletes absolutely dig it and love all the numbers and you almost have to hold them back. Right. Um, so don't get into the numbers too much now. Um, so I think it can go, it can kind of go either way. You need to work with that individual athlete because each, each person's different. Numbers can have a big impact on us mentally, both positive and negative. We asked sports psychologist and co-author of the book, The Brave Athlete, Simon Marshall, his take on how numbers affect mental states. <laughs> for some people, it makes them uh, go faster. For others, it makes them go slower. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? When you start to uh, formalize the competition part that's one way pinning a number on really is a, a one of the most overt signs of direct you know head-to-head -head competition that you can get 
for some people, they seem to sort of buckle under it and other people rise to the challenge. And, and often one of the reasons for the difference is really about the architecture or the brand of your chimp brain, right? So folks who are worried about feeling a bit imposterish or they might worry about social approval, they might have more anxiety. Other people who are the way that their chimp shows dominance is by everything's a competition. I love, I can't wait to put on a number and so on. And it, it helps them uh, perform. We do know that, that competing with other people makes you faster. Uh, you ever, uh, pretty much the, the literature is almost universally consistent, whether it's from time to exhaustion on a treadmill or a bike that has speed that which you can ride a, a, a dry, um, wind a fishing reel in, how far you can throw things. When you're around other people and they're doing the same thing as you and you're being compared to them, you get better. Now, the challenge, of course, for athletes is trying to convince them that you will be better, even though that you're terrified and you hate this, you will be better. And so that really is where the psycholo psychological piece comes in. I said that we could talk for an hour just on this topic. So one of the thing, the big issues is a what we call a participant versus a competitor mindset. And the way that materializes in sort of everyday normal person world is... The athlete who says, oh, I just want to I just I just want to enjoy it. I just want to have a good time. I just want to all. No one is saying that that's a bad thing. When you put on a number and many people don't feel as though that they have the I'm not competitive or I'm just going to somehow if I can give every reason uh, ahead of time about why the outcome is the way it is. I can never truly my talent or abilities or however they're interpreting them can never truly be on. Uh, measured right is because so when you this is what we often call self-sabotaging and self-sabotaging in the for the folks who number pinning they get nervous is the default strategy for them so we try and unpick the self-sabotaging so in other words if you remove all of the obstacles to why you couldn't have performed. So in other words, oh, I just did this. It's just a training day or oh, I, I, have a, I didn't sleep that well last night. Oh, it's raining or all the reasons that we give. Of course, the real reason for all of these things is because the worst thing that you're, you can do to your chimp is to say there were no barriers, no excuses for why you hid. Do you know what the actual answer is after you've done this? You're just not good enough. You don't have what it takes. Your chimp will shit the bed. So what the human brain does is it implants little things along the way so it never has to say everything went according to plan and you know what, I still came up short. So the strategy is to undo some of the self-sabotaging mechanisms, learn how to evaluate, re-change people's fundamental relationship with failure, which is we talk about effort and attitude versus performance and goals and podiums and so on. And when you can do that, your performance takes dramatic leaps. Leslie was a mid-pack pro for, for much of her early, she was an ITU athlete from 19 to 21, came into the, left the sport because of all those reasons. So I'm not taking credit for it, uh, but I, we, we worked together on it. She got more confident in the sport. She got to a point where she literally has no more left in the suitcase she doesn't care she does a local cross country in san diego there's a target on her back everyone wants to beat her now you have to have and you, and she's just done 40 hours of training she's tired she's already done a session in the morning and she's turning up to this race 
that for most people's chimps is like, oh my God, every race has to be my A race. Has to be. So if you can get to the point where you can run unshackled or race on it, you don't care about this, it's all process focused, but still be competitor, that competitor mindset. No, I'm just out for the, that's the sweet spot. And if you can manage that and develop that, the world opens up to you athletically. It really does. We've seen it time and time again. Longtime listeners know that we often discuss training data on Fast Talk. So we're excited to announce a new pathway at Fast Talk Labs, the Basic Performance Data Analysis Pathway. Pathways are like a masterclass on endurance sports topics. In our new pathway on basic data analysis, we tap experts like Tim Cusick, Dirk Friel, my co-host Trevor Connor, our head coach Ryan Kohler, coach Julie Young, and sports scientist Dr. Steven Seiler to explore ways that athletes can cut through the noise and focus on the performance numbers that matter most. To know your data is to know yourself. Follow our new pathways at fasttalklabs.com pathways. So Trevor, we haven't talked a lot about heart rate. I know you use it a lot in training in certain situations. How do you use it in a race, if at all? I do think heart rate, as long as, again, it's not going to have a big negative impact on your effective state. I think heart rate can actually be very valuable because, remember, we, we've talked about before, power is an external measure. Heart rate is an internal measure. So the danger with, with power, again, is you don't know where your legs are at that day. So you might say, well, my FTP is 320. But if you're in a race where you're feeling amazing and that day you could do 340, 350, but you're looking down and seeing 320 and go, well, I can't go above this, you're going to limit yourself. Mm-hmm. Likewise, you're going to get very discouraged if you're just not having a great day and you're closer to 300. Uh, like the race I had this weekend where, as Dirk pointed out, we were at 8,000 feet and, and I wasn't in the moment of the race going, I'm at really high altitude. I can't put out the same power. So that's the danger of power. But heart rate tends to be heart rate. And it tells you how your body is feeling. And if you are in a group or, or something's going on in a race where you're looking down and saying, my threshold heart rate's 170, I'm at 180. You know very clearly this is not sustainable. I'm I'm going to crack at some point. And then the thing is not to get discouraged. The thing is then to strategize. Can I get back into the field? Are there ways I can rest? Can I prevent myself from getting into the wind? Try to get that heart rate down. Likewise, when I'm in a like if I'm in a four or five hour race and I know there's going to be some big moments later on and, and nothing's going on, I actually play a little game where I sit in the field. I'm like, how low can I get my heart rate? I want to see if I can get it down around 120, which is my easy training pace, so mm-hmm. that I can save energy for later. So it just tells you a little bit how your body's responding. That's funny. I thought about, I made a note, think like a runner. You know, cyclists tend to think max, 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 push, push, more, more, more watts. And a runner thinks like, okay, economy, 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 right. economy. How, how fast can I go with the least amount of energy? Mm-hmm. That's what we're getting at here. And, you can even, I've looked in stage races at two different athletes and how do they conserve energy leading into the final big climb of the day and a younger athlete with less ability to, to manage the wind, ride in the group, get on the good wheels. They will 
you know, waste a lot of TSS, you know, higher intensity factor, hence more glucose, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And they enter the climb in a bad state. Whereas another rider just knows how to conserve energy. So this is where it's not always about pushing more, more, more. There are many opportunities in races to sit back and conserve and the best riders coast the most. (laughs) Yes. They, right. This is like, gives me like goosebumps. Like they coast the most, you know, and it's not about pushing and pushing, pushing, pushing. You got to find many thousands of moments in the race to float there, to coast, float, use people actually. So here's a little game that I used to play that it, you can use numbers for, and, and it's a really good practice to use. So we had this Wednesday night training race in Fort Collins that I, I used to go to. Uh, at that time, my threshold heart rate was about 175. So I set a rule for myself that so the race was about an hour and a half. Uh, I could not break a 155 heart rate until the last 10 minutes of the race. And you had to get very good at learning how to surf wheels, be at the right place at the right time, being at the front before you hit these little climbs in order to make sure you, you could stay with the field but not break that heart rate. And it, got, it taught me how to conserve when it's not important. Yeah. And an example of where I've used heart rate is a very long race, like six and a half hours. And let's say it's a mountain bike race. The first hour the first hour is going to be climbing draft does not take effect. It's I get to the top with who I'm at the top with and I need to manage for the final hour of the race. Like the meat of this race is how much energy do you have for the final 90 minute climb of the six and a half hour race And the last right. 90 minutes is a climb. Again, drafting does not take effect, especially, you know, in like a mountain bike race. So, that's where I will use heart rate, um, where I'm, you know, for me, my threshold is lower, probably 165. I'm trying to keep it around under 156 or so on this first climb, because I know if I can have more energy at the end of the race, I've had years where I've lost 20 minutes, you know, on that final climb, where I was against my, my best years. And I know it came down to fueling strategy, pacing, the first half of the race. And that really set me up well for the second half of the race. Um, that's where heart rate really, really helped me out. Very good. So let's wrap this section up a little bit. How numbers can help in racing. Dirk, do you have a take-home message for... In racing? In racing, yeah. Oh, man, there's no one simple answer there. <laughs> I think we determined, you know, I mean, can come down to the athlete and and the race and the course and time trial versus road race and... Um, but certainly to be able to take in the data and make those decisions, as Trevor mentioned, then that's the best course of action. But yeah, given that, getting that feedback, you know, the heart rate we just mentioned, um, and I guess it's a psychological game. You don't always want too many numbers. So in road races, I would love to just go more on instinct, you know, in, in road races. Um, that's my go-to. In time trials, leverage the data to give you some feedback, but it's still an absolute all-out effort still. It's a time trial. But there's moments in the race where you just need to not go too hard. So that's, I think, big value in, in time trials. Overall, though, I think you need, you know, race data is for training. It's really 
it shows your true form. If you did an all out, very hard, difficult race, that's your true form at the moment. It might show you your weaknesses that you didn't know about. And how can we work on those weaknesses in training? And it may set new personal bests, which you can now possibly target in training and pushing the envelope a bit more. So that we did break up that I just want to quickly add to that. If you are using power in a time trial or an event to pace yourself, I highly recommend using 10 second or 30 second mm. averaging. True. Yeah. Because think about when you're doing a hard effort, when you're really hurting or you're in a really good rhythm, you're not looking down at your computer. You tend to look down when you've eased off. So if you are looking at instantaneous power, you're going to tend to look down, see a lower number, go, I'm not going hard enough, which is both going to demotivate you and also make you overpace yourself. If you use that 10-second or 30-second averaging, you're going to see something more representative of what you've actually been doing. Trevor, you mentioned that uh, study that we also described in the Kristen Armstrong episode. Uh, what's your take-home from, from that, or what's the, the tale that you'd like to end with from that point? Well, first of all, they actually got away with a good title for this one. Oh, yeah? Just called Less is More. Oh, wow. Is that impressive for a, a study? <laughs> I don't know how they got it published. Yeah, we talked about this one on a previous episode, so I'll just give you the 30-second the summary, but it's worth knowing. This is where they took time trialists and had them repeat a time trial. So again, I think it was three times once as just a baseline. Then once they had them do it with a single metric, just time. That's all they could see, how long they had been going. Uh, the second time or third time, they had them do it with multiple metrics. So they had cadence, power, heart rate, you know, all the standard metrics you, you would look at. And universally, they did worse when they had all the metrics. The explanation in this study is, is they called it uh, cognitive fatigue. Right. That looking at all these numbers actually kind of... Data overload. So this goes back to Dr. Noakes and this whole central versus peripheral fatigue and saying that, that actually fatigue, the, the source of fatigue is in our brain. So even though you think, well, why is looking at a bunch of numbers fatiguing me on the bike, your body doesn't necessarily differentiate the fatigue. So if you're looking at all these numbers and trying to process them, that's a load on your brain that fatigues your brain and then that expresses physically and will actually fatigue you a little on the bike. Mm. And they did, they used a, a, this gear where they could watch the athlete's eyes, where their eyes were looking, and notice that as the athletes got more and more tired, they stopped looking at all the metrics. <laughs> so they were even somehow subconsciously aware that looking at these numbers was, was fatiguing them. This makes me think of the, I, I like to call it the never-ending math problem. I've done what used to be called Dirty Kansas twice, now unbound, and I feel like the second half of that race which is approximately six hours, <laughs> if you were going at my pace, um, is it, I'm, I'm calculating the entire time. When is this going to end? When is yep. this going to end? I'm mm -hmm. going this speed. I've got this many miles left. When is it going to end? When yeah. is it going to end? I'm going this speed. It's this many miles left. When is it going to end? <laughs> over and over again. And I can't say that my math skills are very good in the second half of a race like that. And it's just this constant struggle. And I'm, after hearing what you've just said, I'm wondering how much longer did I make myself go out there because I was fatiguing my brain even more but, by trying to do this math problem. But there is another side to that, which was 
you were probably doing some of that just to distract yourself Absolutely. from the pain, which yeah. probably helped. What else yeah. could I do out yeah. there? It's a straight road that goes for five miles. It's a headwind. I got to do something with my brain. But the lesson I got from this study is if you're going to have a race screen, don't have a race screen with 20 different metrics on it. Probably pick one or two that you value mm-hmm. and keep mm-hmm. it simple. Yep. We asked Jen Sharp, a racer and coach with Sharp Coaching, her opinion on whether racing with numbers helps or hurts us. Do you prefer to have your athletes race looking at the numbers or not? And if they, you have them look at numbers while they're racing, which numbers do you want them to key off of? Great question. So it depends on the athlete and it depends on the type of race. Um, if it is an athlete that gets obsessed with numbers, then absolutely not. Yeah. Don't do it because you go down this pitfall of I'm not good enough. I'm not hitting my numbers or I'm going too high. Like the anxiety, it just creates anxiety. Um, however, if you have an athlete that is good with numbers and motivated by that and able to keep things in check, then I would apply it to a time trial situation and to give them, I actually use best bike split to help Mm -hmm. them figure out, okay, what is our, um, step-by-step goal for power for those races. And you see how well you can execute a race based on that power plan. And that can be helpful, but in a road race or in a crit, no way. Don't look. You can't look, you're going to crash. <laughs> do you ever tape over people's head units or have them tape over it? Do you go that far? Yeah. Or, or switch it to a different field where they're just seeing like time elapsed. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's turn our attention to using numbers to prepare for a race. And you've already mentioned uh, sort of some modeling and best bike split, Dirk. Uh, could you go into a little bit more detail about how that how somebody does that, what, what it, what involves, how it's used, et cetera. Yeah, certainly. I mean, best bike split takes as much data as possible into account. You know, we're asking obviously simple math of body weight, functional threshold power, but we get into even wheel selection, the depth of your wheel, the, the width of your tire. Um, do you have an aero helmet? Yes or no. Um, pulls all this in and try and figure out your CDA, right? If you know your CDA from a wind tunnel, you can plop it in there. Um, but we're trying to do as best of a best of a guess as possible to get at your CDA. Um, and then pull in the race course, you know, pull in that, that race course file that you can get from the race organizer. Um, and then you actually put in the road surface. So mm-hmm. rough, smooth, effectively, then the time and date, because then we're going to start pulling in the weather models. And as you get closer to the race, that modeling and best bike split will become more accurate. And I remember every year in Hawaii at Ironman, people are coming to our booth and they're like refreshing their model, you know, at our, at our best bike split training peaks booth and just to see what the weather pattern is for the next day. And if that changed anything in, in their, in their pacing, you have that model, obviously it's going to break it up into, depending on the length of the time trial, you know, all kinds of segments, hundreds of segments possibly, which is you can't just memorize them all. Um, but if you stand back, you can see this pacing strategy of this course just by eyeballing it. Um, but then you can take it quite a few steps further from there and you can import it into your head unit 
and you can make it a virtual rabbit on race day, or you can actually practice and kind of recon the course indoors, you know, on your smart trainer and import that, um, and actually race that indoors. And, um, so you can get that rhythm of the course and where you need to kind of hold back and where you really need to push it. So that's really all kind of comes out of the modeling of best bike split and Ryan Cooper, who's the kind of genius behind it all. Um, and you can set up different bikes, different courses. You can play around with the equipment. You can play around with the intensity factor. So if you want to push the envelope farther and go 10% above threshold, you know, what will that do for your time? Or if you want to, you know, you're doing this eight months out. What if I lost, you know, eight pounds of body fat? What might that do to my my finish time? So there's all kinds of different scenarios scenarios you can play and save. These these scenarios can be saved and remodeled. Um, so you can really really geek out on it <laughs> as much as you want. Yeah, yeah, and and you can you can well. Trevor and I did something similar to this when I was preparing for the hour record. Our record is a very don't want to say it's totally controlled, but it's far fewer variables than an open course with wind um, and surface changes and all of that. Plugging in that information is able to spit out a you will go this far type thing, and then you can cue off of that. And it's a, it's kind of amazing how accurate it can be. <laughs> yes. It, it actually, it started out with he was predicting time trial finishes in the Tour de France by under like five seconds. And he would actually be predicting like the winner because he would take data that they've posted publicly and then just plug that data in and get the model pretty damn accurate. And when we saw that, we're like, wow, this, that's pretty darn cool. And we, we need to bring this to everybody. So that was pretty awesome how he was doing that in his basement and like publicly putting it on a blog post and mm-hmm. it would like work out the next day. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, that was really neat. The only thing I would add to this is when you're talking about an athlete like a Kristen Armstrong or time trialist, and it is interesting that we've been talking about the value of numbers. We keep going to time trialing. But when you're talking about a top-level athlete performing in a time trial, they have done enough of this. They have learned how to hurt. I mean, they can show up on the start line and put out their best performance. You, you, they, they've just learned how to do that. They can rely on that. I don't think when Kristen Armstrong went to the last Olympics, she was sitting there worrying about, "Ooh, am I going to be able to put out the power in this one?" She knew she could. Mm-hmm. So once you're at that level and know that you can put out the performance, then this becomes remarkably valuable of doing this analysis of where is the best places to put in those extra efforts and and how to pace it specifically. The only thing I get to say is if. To any of our listeners, if you're fairly new to this, you've never done a time trial before, you've only done a few, you should really just be focusing on learning how to push that effort, how to hurt, learn how to do that first before you, you get into the modeling too much. Once you can pretty consistently go out and go, yeah, I, I can put out whatever, you know, your, let's say your 20-minute power, you're doing a 20-minute time trial and you know your 20-minute power is around 280, you know you can do that every time, then a tool like this modeling beforehand can be really valuable. Yeah. And before you get to that level of, you know, every five seconds of different power, it it's more about the the eyeballing, the the course and the strategy to attack it with. Not per se the exact wattage, but the RPE, 
you know, we're, we should not be at an RPE 10 on this descent. We should be at an RPE 10 on this climb, you know, so think in those terms of the rhythm of the time trial and where the places are to, to make up the, the most time. One thing that I don't think has been extremely clearly stated here, but I think is very important for, for people that are new to the sport or new to data, um, coming in and just immediately buying all the stuff to give them the data is probably not the right approach. I think that RPE and an internal sense of how hard is hard, how hard you can go for a certain uh, amount of time on a certain climb, whatever the case may be, is an, a critical um, skill that needs to be learned and acquired over time. And, and I don't know how long it necessarily takes. It, it's probably different for everybody. Um, some people might have an athletic background that they can tap into when they come to the sport of cycling, which has m- perhaps more data than a lot of other sports. Um, but anyways, that internal sense is very useful um, and I would hate to see people immediately go to the numbers and have it serve as a bit of a crutch for them uh, and and mask that internal sense that is useful and can be tapped into. For instance, in a race setting when you have to work off of instinct, you cannot look at a number and know how hard you can or cannot go or, or something like that. So yeah. I just want to note that. Right. Racing is instinctual and strategic first and it overrides numbers it it sets the tone of what should be done next or in the moment that internal pain management you have to experience and learn to deal with but you need to also see the limits of that independent of any number just the pain that you have to absorb and deal with and learn to manage and push through um, that dictates whatever the numbers are saying so you are in a crosswind in the gutter no draft but you know the next corner is coming up in 300 meters you, you gotta last 300 meters that's the number to, that's know, the only that's one that the matters number, the number is the next corner yeah and you turn that and then oh now we have a headwind oh strategy is different We've all bunched up. Oh my God. This, okay. Is this the time I get my reprieve? Yes, it is. Okay. I get this for the next mile. You know, uh, that, that needs to be absorbed first before really having any numbers dictate your next move. I have a big believer that every race comes down to a couple critical moments. There, there are these just moments in races where you are either there or you're not. And if you fall off of that wheel or whatever that moment happens to be, it's over. And numbers aren't going to get you through that moment. As a matter of fact, if you're looking at your numbers in that moment, you're probably already losing. So learn what those moments are. You know, you just brought up one is that being in the crosswind where they're trying to string out the field. They're trying to pop people. They're trying to discourage people. And that's one of those moments where it's just absolute suffering. You're wondering if you're going to last the next five seconds and you got to last another minute and just kind of keep yourself going and surviving until they finally ease up. Numbers aren't going to really help you with that. The only other thing that I'll add, I love your point about instinct, that road racing is is instinctual. Uh, You have to learn how to read a field. 
and numbers aren't going to help you with that. And you have to get good enough at reading the field that it becomes instinctual. You just know when something's about to happen. You know when you can break away. You know when you can't. Uh, and again, if your face is buried in a bike computer looking at the numbers, you're not going to learn those. I mentioned before I, I raced in Belgium, and when I first went over, you know, we're doing amateur races that 150 guys in the field, and the director was like, "You're not racing unless you're in the top 15, 20 percent of that field. If you're not in the top 15 percent of that field, you're simply not racing. <laughs> you know, let's start there. Let's can you maintain position?" And so that example of being in the crosswind gutter by yourself, well, the lesson learned there was I needed to be farther up, yep. you know? So next time I, next lap, I need to be in the top 10 and fight for a wheel. And well, how do I fight for a wheel? Well, that's experience. You know, you have to learn that. Yeah, we used to say that on, on some of the teams I was on. If you're a hundredth wheel in the field, you're not in the race, you're watching the race. <laughs> One thing I want to touch upon again, uh, you you mentioned some of the things you can do with the data you collect during a race after the fact to inform training. Um, I wonder if we might add to that a bit of, a, I don't know if a cautionary tale is necessary, but uh, what shouldn't you do with race numbers after the fact to inform training? Well, it's not always replicable. You know, you can't always set a new personal best. And if you did that in the race, you know, good on you. That's, it should, that's where you should do it on race day, right? Not in training. Um, but don't expect to be able to replicate that in training. You, you, this is why we do intervals too. We break it down. We know you can't do your personal best every single day or every Wednesday when you do the same workout. So therefore we're going to break it down into chunks and we're going to, take whatever you, your max 20 minute, and we're going to break it down into eight minute efforts, eight, you know, three by eight minutes at your 20 minute pace. Right. And you still may not be able to exactly hit the number even at that. Um, but be comfortable knowing that that's okay. And it's more about the trend over time. It's, it's more important to have consistency than to overanalyze any one particular training workout. My analogy that I like to bring up is that, you know, it, you're, you're building your own personal uh, um, self-portrait. And every single day is just a little dab of the paintbrush. And today's yellow, tomorrow's red, a little blue, a little, little, little green. And, you, you know, that, that consistency really builds what you've built over time. It's more about the consistency over time that builds your self-portrait. And if you didn't like how the nose turned out at the end of this year, you know you need to work on the nose, you know. And going into next yep. year, we're going to concentrate on the nose. We're going to have a little better, more effort on having a perfect nose in our self-portrait. So, but you can't have the perfect um, training day every single day, and you have to be comfortable with that. That's the mental side of of the consistency, and just knowing the cons consistency will 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 win out in the end. We now close every episode with a take-home message. We give you 60 seconds to encapsulate everything we've spoken about. Your life's work, in fact, we want to know. What would you give people out there that they should take away from this episode? Capture the data. <laughs> Says the man who co-founded Training Peaks. Yeah, you know, and you know, once you enter year two, 
with the data, it becomes infinitely more powerful because you can only do, you can't really do much with just the one year worth of data. But once you can start to compare and contrast year over year, again, my, my example of a self-portrait, what went wrong? Let's try and improve upon what went right. Let's try and repeat. That's in the data. Now there's more than just data and psychology and nutrition and all kinds of other stuff, but you know, capture the data. Don't always race to it. Don't have let it overdrive your, uh, your instinct and the strategy of the day is I think my, my takeaway, but capture it and then leverage that data in training. Trevor. At one point we talked about the importance of your effective state, that that kind of trumps everything. If you have that positive mood and, and that belief, you're going to do better than if you're, you're feeling very negative. And numbers can have an impact on that. So my take home is, A, know that about yourself, whether they're going to help you or hurt you. But then if you're going to use numbers in racing, pick numbers that are going to lead to effective actions. So that's why I use the, the profile of the course, because... I know if there's a big climbing coming up that I need to get to the front of the, the field, be in the right place for the climb. That leads to effective action. Don't use numbers that are just going to put you into a negative mood and hurt that effective state. If you're looking at power and it's just always making you grouchy, don't use it. There's no value. It's not helping you take any actions. Chris? The numbers are not, uh, sorry, Dirk, they're just not for me, right? Um, but I think that context is really, really important. If you race cyclocross, I don't even know if you need a head unit on your bike. It's just go as hard as you can, stay upright, et cetera, et cetera. So in that sense, numbers are almost irrelevant. In a time trial, I think they can serve as a, a bit of a roadmap or a check-in or something. It depends on the person. It depends on the course. It depends on the day. The, there's value in them. Um, in road races, there's value in them sometimes, and then at other times, you should totally disregard them. So I think that the, my overarching point here would be that context really matters, the situation really matters, and you have to you have to use your best judgment when to use them and when not to use them. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast, and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com and discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Dirk Friel, Simon Marshall, Swain Tuft, Shana Paulus, Jen Sharp, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. <laughs>